risk. Risk is our business. That's what the starship is all about. That's why we're aboard her. Engage. There are three things to remember about being a starship captain. Keep your shirt tucked in, go down with the ship, and never abandon a member of your crew. I don't care if the odds are against us. If we're going to lose, then we're going to go down fighting. But we're going to learn from those mistakes. That's what being human is all about. What a piece of work is man. It is a tale told by an idiot. Make it so. Hello, Internet, and welcome to the Boldly Going Podcast, a podcast where three guys talk about every episode of Star Trek that's ever been made. I'm your host, Alec. I'm Bailey. We're on the internet? <laughs> I'm Ethan. <laughs> and uh, we just saw a piece of crap called Balance of Terror. It's a terrible episode, folks. Right after Charlie X. <laughs> the greatest <laughs> thing I've ever seen. Charlie X was a true masterpiece. Everyone involved in the production of Balance of Terror are hacks. <laughs> folks, I can't keep this I can't keep this up. It's no secret among the Star Trek community at large, even from people within that, or like writers and producers, that Balance of Terror is maybe the best episode of the original series ever made. I'm struggling to disagree with that at the moment, especially after Charlie X. Before we get too deep into it, we should give our, our basic thoughts as we as we like to do a little a little warm up before the episode as a whole, and then we'll we'll dive right into it. Uh, Bailey, you you almost died today at at work. Um, he had a close call, folks, but he's alive. He's with us. We're happy to have we're happy to have him with us after. Yes. And um, what do you think about Balance of Terror? Wow. I, I yeah I uh, I was totally taken aback before I even knew it. It was it was over, and I didn't want it to be over. But it was over at the right time. Yeah, he was definitely struggling to take notes during it because it was just so engaging. I had to constantly do the same, pull myself back to my notepad mm -hmm. just to yeah. really intentionally be like, no, 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 part of what we do here is make sure we have observations. Because <laughs> um, it's pretty tempting to just let this one go straight through. Yeah. I actually wound up through funny circumstances. Uh, because Ethan was delayed, I wound up watching this episode twice in a row and... It was not wasted time. Like this, <laughs> this is a good one. This is a real good one. It first aired on the fifteenth of December, nineteen sixty-six. It was the ninth episode produced. It was the fourteenth aired. But when they remastered the series, this was the first episode remastered, and the first episode of the remastered episodes that was aired on TV. I don't know if the uh, dates when that happened. But good choice. Yeah. yeah. It was written by Paul Schneider. And Paul Schneider would only write one other episode, unfortunately. Um, fortunately, that episode is Squire of Gothos, which is a very good episode. But as a fun fact, Paul Schneider got his start in Hollywood writing episodes of Mr. Magoo. That's great! He wrote a ton of Mr. Magoo. He wrote the Mr. Magoo movie. You can really tell how the, the source material complements each other, and how uh, writing for the Magoo series would give you the... The production credibility necessary to oh, tackle yes. such an ambitious project in Star Trek. And it was directed by Vincent McEverty. He would direct six episodes total, including one of my other all-time favorites, Spectre of the Gun. He's a very good director. Um, I really noticed the lighting in this episode. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I, I noticed that too. The eye lighting on Kirk is very strong in this episode. Almost too strong in some sequences. <laughs> uh, they really like to hit them with the eye light, but it's very good. 
So as everyone noticed while uh, watching this episode, and many of you all know, the plot of this episode is loosely based on the 1957 film The Enemy Below, which is a submarine story. As you could tell, this is a very submarine-style battle in space. If it, you've ever seen something like The Hunt for Red October or other related movies Run that Silent really Run deal with D. that, these are these. This will give you some real deja vu vibes going through. What do you guys think about the submarine style of combat for spaceships? Because this is the first episode, if you're watching them in production order, where the Enterprise is involved in a in an actual space battle mm-hmm. with another vessel of of about equal capabilities. Did you did you like the I like the the submarine style combat? Yeah, I I think it it added attention to it to to the entire episode in general where you never knew where your enemy was and that's terrifying when i i think of this episode and its use of the submarine sort of premise you get really good setup for the stakes of the conflict that's going on but ultimately my long term opinion on whether or not this is going to be effective or not sort of boils down to how the rest of the series respects or doesn't respect these rules that are established because Fortunately, it's early enough in the series that you can explain any changes later on as, like, development of technology and other things to sort of return to a different style of, of combat. Starting it early gives you the chance to sort of experiment a bit, and then if it doesn't turn out, you can sort of say, okay, that was sort of in this situation or developed out. But I like what it presented here, but I also recognize that show producers in the future might look at it and say, this is generally restrictive for a lot of the future stories that are going to need to be told. For, for better or for worse, they will never do a submarine-style battle again. It will be more traditional kind of space space battle when they do space battle. There aren't a lot of big space battles in the original series, obviously, for budgetary reasons. I don't know, because I really like kind of the submarine style. Um, it's worth pointing out that this episode was done before they invented photon torpedoes. So the phasers in this episode behave like photon torpedoes will behave. They even use the same sound effect that they will give to the photon torpedoes. So there is something to be to be said for that. I mean, Kirk does order the uh, proximity blast call, which is like a little bit of techno babble there. But but even so, we'll be uh, we'll be photon torpedoing and phaser mixing it from here on out. So it's just I like the, the submarine battle. I think um, the inspiration from the two submarine films is great. It makes for a really good tension-filled episode, and as we talk about it, the writing is very solid, and the stakes are well-balanced. So Ethan and I watched the preview. Preview sucks. <laughs> preview always sucks. Back to too much information. After what was generally a good preview for... Which one had a decent preview? Charlie X! Yeah, Charlie X had a good preview. That was the only thing good that they did. It was preview. <laughs> Maybe it's because they didn't even know what the episode was going to be like before they kept assembling that... Shattered corpse of an yeah, together. Is this a horror? Is this a teen drama? <laughs> D. We don't oh. know. Anyways, but yeah, I guess it's it's just coming back to say that, please, if you ever end up in a position where you have influence on any of these kinds of decisions, respect that your audience in general likes to, you know, not know the whole story before going in. Certain outliers aside, like myself. <laughs> Ethan jumping ahead and reading plot synopsis for season two episodes. We're not going to get to for a couple of weeks. <laughs> you, you hold these secrets in the future over my head as if I'm going to not bite at them. And then, like, five seconds later, I'm in the plot summary. I'm like, oh, that's what you're referring to. <laughs> yes, I am an abomination. So, unlike Ethan, this episode is not an abomination. It's very good. And it opens in a way you would not expect... 
a submarine-style episode to open with a wedding on board the Enterprise. The mm. chapel set is, depending on which book you read, either a refurnished transporter room set or a refurnished conference room set. I'm not sure. Both are officially licensed Star Trek behind-the-scenes products that say it. So who even knows? What's important is the Enterprise has a chapel. And it's actually sort of nice looking. Yeah. They they did a decent job. They set it up. It, it has rows of chairs. It has nice... Uh, Bones can't use a chair, front. though, for some reason. Of course not. Room is nice, light blue color. I thought it was very reassuring and sort of like soothing as a chapel should be. It was decorated with death flags all around. I mean, wait a minute. No, no, no. Um, didn't have death flags physically, but it had death flags story-wise. A, a wedding at the beginning of an episode, I wonder what's going to happen. called The Balance of Terror. <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting next to Bailey, and he goes, oh, no. <laughs> it is interesting, as a brief aside, that they have a chapel on board, as Roddenberry was an avowed atheist and fought the studio executives who originally wanted to put a chaplain on board the Enterprise as a Navy vessel, because all Navy vessels had chaplains. I don't know, maybe the chaplain is there for chapel, chapel room is there for when the Vulcan dignitaries come by or some mm. of the other races. Mm. But regardless, it serves appropriately as a spaceship. We have two young officers who are about to get married. They still have to wear their uniforms. So Angela, the, the woman, she's got a little yeah. she's got something in her hair to signify, but other than that, they're all dressed up. I just forgot she was Think, thought she forgot to wash out the shampoo. <laughs> Scotty's got this giant closed circuit camera that he's mounted on the wall, so everybody on the uh, and Scotty walks the bride down the aisle like a proud dad. We don't know what her kid's connection to this woman yeah. is, but apparently he's. I I think this scene really emphasizes Kirk's authority as a captain because he he has the power to do marriage. Do marriage. <laughs> well, that's that's just a bit of a traditional throwback yeah. as well as they mentioned about the the captains. Historically, throughout the Navy, have had authority over yeah. marriage rights. And Kirk gives that in his little speech. And later in TNG, in um, Data's Day, I can't remember what season that is, but Picard gets to marry someone aboard the Enterprise. In a little homage to this episode, that he gives basically the same speech. But, alas, before Angela and her... Roger. No, Robert. Before Angela and Ken, Robert... Is it Kensington? What's Tomlinson. his name, guy? Tomlinson. Robert Tomlinson and Angela Kensington. Before she can become Mrs. Robinson whatever, Tomlinson, the red alert goes, and it's all hands to the bridge. See, Kirk had been in earlier talk with Spock, who's in command, because Spock was not going to attend a, a wedding. Or I actually like that earlier conversation, though, just to sort of skip to it for a sec. The fact that he's preparing for the wedding, but he's he's talking with Spock about the situation of investigating Earthquakes 2 and 3, but he's doing it on a sort of low-key way. He's keeping it sort of whisper voices, all this stuff, yeah. so that he's not unnecessarily disturbing his crew. And it sort of shows that as a captain, he's doing his responsibilities, but he's also being considerate of sort of like the, the natural lives that people are trying to live yeah. in the midst of being interstellar space police. So it's it was a nice touch, and it actually showed a little bit of Kirk's humanity in that situation, because did he have to? No, he has a captain. He has every right to sort of be running the ship in whichever way he needs to at any given moment. But he gives that courtesy to the people getting married, which is it's, it's just a nice little detail. But unfortunately, you hit that point where... You have to spring into action because this is a ship that's got guns on it. And as we will discover yeah. later, both Angela and her husband-to-be work in the phaser control in areas. They both work in weapons, which is not Scotty's department. So, again, I don't know how he knows her, but it's not important. <laughs> What's important is that they're all called up because Outpost 4 is under attack. Yep. It has not gone silent like the others. It is under attack. We smash cut to our opening credits. 
There's a brief shot of a guy running by in a hazard suit that is better than the hazard suit that that one guy died in in Man Trap. Deserved to die in in Man Trap because of his <laughs> stupidity. Oh well. We get back to the bridge. Kirk says to Scotty, "Can you get more speed out of the engine so we can get there as fast as but possible?" Actually, Scotty anticipates the question, the order even before it's given, which is a nice touch. He's already There's a little on bit it. of longevity between the crew, <laughs> and it's like, "I know what you're going to ask him on it." It's sort of a cool thing. I like yeah. these little again, little details. A lot of them in this episode because they're not quite in range yet to speak with Outpost Four. So Kirk throws up the old timey map, <laughs> a two D map to map three D space, but hey. <laughs> And we, we do get an as-you-know speech from Spock to give some of the history of the galaxy, but that's eh, not a big deal. <laughs> and it does help for world-building, so I'll give it a good and pass And you can give that. it a pass in that the crew is, pro- is about 400 crewmen, and we can't expect all of them to know every detail of a 100-year-old war. So while I do agree that there's an element of as-you-know, I think they do an excellent job of... Because Kirk addresses the crew, and he's like, okay, everybody, listen up. And Spock gives us the background on the human-Romulan war. This happened 100 years ago when they fought each other with primitive spaceships and nukes. <laughs> Spock explicitly mentions primitive and, nuclear weapons. And in a way, it's important to, to recognize that he is the science officer. So of anyone to be covering history, it is sort of more up his alley than anyone else's. Yeah. So that, that sort of does pan out as well. He, he explains that in these old wars, everything was done over radio. They had no ship-to-ship communication. They had no visual. So nobody knows what the other side looks like. They don't know anything about them beyond that. Spock has this great line where he says, you know, we understand the Romulans to be cunning, ruthless, and warlike, and only the Romulans know what they think of us, which is a very, very clever little line. We don't know who's attacked these outposts on the edge of the neutral zone. Yes, folks, this famous Star Trek landmark, the neutral zone between the Federation and the Romulan Empire, is first established here. And it's going to continue to play a part in pretty much every Star Trek show other than Voyager yeah. from this point onward. And it seems that humanity is pretty active in monitoring and observing this neutral zone. The way this, this episode is set up is there is a, there are at least eight, probably more, monitoring posts along the neutral zone built into asteroids to sort of keep track of things from the Earth side of things, which it's, is good. It's Back basically the, it's the space version of the no man's land between North and South Korea. Yeah, yeah. Because it's it's understanding that yes, the humans and the Romulans, the humans and their allies and the Romulans have a peace treaty, but it is kind of a cold, cold yes. peace. It's a cold war, more or less. Before we get close, Styles is our navigator for this episode. Styles exists only to be an angry jerk. Uh, gone is Kevin Riley. Gone is Mister Farrell. We are back to episode one, two, one and two Star Trek, where the navigator is just a jerk in the episode. Because Farrow says, before we've even gotten to the star, he says, we know who attacked them. It was those dirty Romulans who attacked them. <laughs> and my family knows, because they were in war. You see, folks, Styles is saying, we know the Romulans attacked us. The Kirk says, how the heck would we know they're Romulans? It's been a hundred years, and we don't know what their ships look like. Styles says, they paint birds on their ships. Which it's actually no one suddenly ever- contradicts the previous statement, because in Spock's explicit delivery to the crew, he says... The crew spaceships of the past didn't have visibility with other ships. So even his family on those ships shouldn't have been able to see what the other ships look like. Small detail. Doesn't really matter. I but think, it's just a funny I think though, that it's they don't have ship to ship like you could see on the inside. Hmm. I kinda get the I mean it uh, could have been a it could have been a flub that way, because I I've always taken it as they didn't have visual ship to ship communication. But I mean you could also take it as they couldn't see outside the ship. 
but it, it's not hugely important because Styles knows. He Styles knows. Because there was a Captain Styles and I, uh, Ensign Styles. They were all killed in in my in our war. Kirk says their war, Mister Styles. Yeah. Not a, not your yeah. war. Don't bring Vietnam into this. Because Styles, he's itching to go. Because Daddy got killed fighting the Romulans. He's ready for payback. We finally get. But into... this is the first mm-hmm. allusion that we get to the fact that these ships will be later called Birds of Prey, correct? Yes. Because uh, I think that that from now on. And I don't know the series well enough to say this, but I'd imagine that from now on, Vulcans, I mean, the Romulans start getting more affiliated with actually being the Romulan birds of prey. So, you're close. And here's the tricky part. Klingon warships are called birds of prey, and Romulan warships are called warbirds. Okay, see? Oh, okay. A whole bunch of guys have written a lot of novels and worked really hard to try and come up with an in-universe explanation as to why the Klingon and the Romulan ships seem similar in the original series, because there's a lot of hard-working people out there where they run into things like, they used the same, they were allies back then, so they used the same equipment. It's not super important. Romulans are warbirds, Klingons are birds of prey. But you are right, they will refer to them as warbirds. Okay. The series. So the bird uh-huh. motif does come in. We make our way finally to the outpost. We're getting into communications range with the outpost. It's been messed up, yeah. to say the least. <laughs> And and just before this has happened, Kensington has been putting up, or whatever, Robertson Kensington, I can't even remember his name. All that matters is that he's assembling death flags faster than the Enterprise is militarizing as they're approaching this outpost, because he's there in the um, phaser department, and he's just there chilling with his lady, and he's like, she's like, we'll get married later, and he's like, for now, I'm your commanding officer. For like, now. For Emphasis now. Like, for now. For now. He even says, get to it, mister. And, oh. and I wrote, oh no, they're cute. Sad face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, this is. Uh, I know that back in the day, this it wasn't quite as tropey yet. We hadn't established as many of our narrative tropes. But from the backward-looking perspective of modern cinematography, this is the raising the flag on uh, Iwo Jima there. <laughs> just being like, as visible as possible, this man is going to die. And it will lead to some good stuff. Yes. It's, Ethan talked yeah. about this a little bit. He lamented it's like... You could not have these good stuff without this trope. So it's, yeah, it, it sets up some super wonderful things to come in the later parts of the episode. So I forgive the death flags for that. It is still good to point out that they are there <laughs> and uh, they're getting pretty obvious. If, if anyone yeah. in 2019 was surprised by the death of, of Robert Thompson, I I got bad news to you for you about TV in general. <laughs> but he hasn't died yet, but he won't die until the end because, of course, he didn't. So if you were thinking that the wedding was just a fluke scene to open it up, we now have official confirmation that that is, that is not the case. No, no. <laughs> but we do approach the outpost. Yeah. The officer is alive. He's calling them on the radio. He says, yeah. our shields were up, and we are a mile deep inside an asteroid that's pretty much pure iron. This ship appeared for a few seconds and hit us with some kind of condensed plasma weapon and blew through our shields and badly damaged the base. And visibly, this guy's disfigured. Like, he's burned, got burn scars all over, he's the last guy left, he says outposts 2, 3, and 8 were completely destroyed, and number 4 is definitely not doing well. And in the midst of his communication of how bad things are, he he gives them an exterior shot, because the ship shows up, it reappears, and just blasts Kirk orders Ahura to hail them, but they ignore them. He asks the station commander if he's got phasers left. They're all burned out. Before our very eyes, Station 4 is snuffed out and the ship disappears again. Alas, poor Hanson. 
The I didn't know you well enough. Nothing but debris and rubble, despite the thickness of the of the space station. We're not sure what's going on, but Ahura picks up a small signal. It's in code, and Spock is able to get a visual from that signal. He's able to tap into the communication and peek on the bridge. And we get our first ever look of the Romulans in Star Trek history. And, of course, by this point, you probably all know the famous twist. Romulans look exactly like Vulcans. Mm-hmm. So Spock, Leonard Nimoy gives this great performance because kind of this, ah, crap face. Yeah, that was a great <laughs> and shot. And Styles yeah. turns and starts staring daggers right at Spock. <laughs> and this is where we have the first guest appearance of Mark Leonard who is one of Star Trek's best guest actors. Absolutely incredible in the role of the Romulan commander. Yeah. He will be back, of course, in the roles he's more famous for, notably. Uh, he will be back playing Spock's dad. Oh. And he crushes it. But you don't need me to tell you how great Sarek is. So the first appearance of the Romulans, Mark Leonard, of course, playing the commander, and the other officer who, not the Centurion, but the impetuous blue-sashed officer is played by Lawrence Montagnu, who will go on to play Stan, another Vulcan in a later episode. The Romulans wear kind of crocheted sweaters, but I love them. Yeah. And they, and they have very clear signifiers for their rank. Higher officers wear those red components. Seemingly intermediary officers wear the blue. And the everyday Joe wears their simple gold and uh, the, overshirt. The bridge is, well, it's a simple set. It's a nice job of making a bridge that looks very different. It looks TARDIS-y almost, and that they're yeah. around a central console and performing their roles around sort of a, a hexagonal sort of Which is setup. a good visual distinction of how their ships are designed. Yeah. They also all wear cost-cutting helmets, folks. I mean closed-eared helmets. Yes. Aside from the commander and the centurion, because if you have not guessed, uh, the Romulans are not so loosely inspired by our own Roman Empire. Although later on in later shows, they'll tweak the Romulans a little bit to change them up a little bit. But they are—they have a Senate and a Praetor, and the two planets in their system are Romulus and Remus. And the advisor was named the Centurion. It's <laughs> great. Uh, they report to a Praetor. Yeah. Yes, the, the helmets keep the ears safe. The, will, the helmets will return later in an episode with more Vulcans in them, but they will spray paint them silver because apparently prosthetic ears cost a lot of money back then. Even so... It's great. It's a great little twist to have. Because we're so used to seeing human-like aliens on Star Trek. Heck, the Vulcans kind yeah. of qualify. But the idea of having a species that looks a lot like an alien species yeah. is a neat concept. Mm -hmm. I really like it. And we will explain later in the episode. Fock will, will pull something out of his butt to try and explain where the Romulans yeah. come from. They'll dive into that a lot later in Star Trek history. But their very first appearance of them, we fade to black and we lose the signal. We come back. And Styles is staring angrily at Spock across. He's not looking at his point to the point that Kirk goes into taps on his console to remind him to look forward and pay attention to what he's doing. <laughs> Ahura has got a copy of the message, and she's trying to send it around to decode it. And Styles yeah. goes, "He's probably got Spark to decode it." Yeah, he's yeah. being sassy. And Kirk goes, "Oh, what was that, Mister Styles?" He says, uh, "Nothing, sir." He says, "Uh, oh, louder so everyone can hear it." He says, "Well, sir, I, th I think you should have Spock decode it." Kirk says, I'm sure that was a compliment about Spock's ability to decode stuff. I'm sure that's what you were trying to do. And he says, I don't know, sir. Which is like <laughs> both kind of the douchiest and also most cowardly response I yeah. think you can give. Because, no, I'm not complimenting him. And I want everyone to know it. But I'm too afraid yeah. to say that, no, actually, I was implying that Spock is a spy and a traitor. Because earlier, 
Sulu and Styles both made yeah. a concern about how they could have Romulan spies aboard because yeah. nobody knows what the Romulans look like. Yeah. And even Sulu, who is in this episode again, aggressively competent, yeah. uh, backs him on that. So he's had spies on the brain, and now he thinks, boom, pointy ears, pointy brows. Uh, you, you, you know, do you have neighbors with pointy ears and pointy brows? Don't be afraid to report them to Big Brother. <laughs> <laughs> now, catching up on this transmission idea, this is going to launch us into basically the main suspense-based plot of the show. Yeah. To the point where right now, they're actually starting their pursuit. They want to follow them as a sensor echo up until the neutral zone, and, and they're getting this transmission, and they're going to follow it in. But the one thing to, to sort of note here is that the cloaking in this episode appears to be based, and I like, I like defining abilities of, of technology and people and other things because it helps set up the storytelling. Yeah. Cloaking appears to be a visual thing. That, and the sensors still permit a form of general detection. Maybe not enough to be precise not, about the uh, Not enough location, to be precise. But still, the, uh, identifying the presence of a ship is about more than just being able to see it. And that's what the sensors allow you to do. Like, the fact that they can physically cloak is still a problem, but it is nonetheless important to distinguish that when the Romulans are cloaked, doesn't mean they're absent. They can still be generally detected, and that allows for the ongoing pursuit to happen at all. But the cloaking, of course, also becomes a factor in targeting and a few other things. So it's just important to define the abilities of various ships, and especially when if you've ever read like Star Wars Expanded Universe or various other places like a New Year cloaking, you're just going to jump to a set of assumptions as to what you think cloaking is. Cloaking here seems to be a visual light field manipulation that prevents visual observation of the vessel. And causes enough problems with sensors to prevent a lock. Yes, yeah. which is a big deal. But Spock theorizes the cloaking technology, and this will be confirmed, of course, in all later Star Trek where cloaks are involved. Mm -hmm. You cannot go to warp while at cloak, so the ship is slower than the Enterprise. Yeah. You cannot fire weapons while cloaked. Mm. And they themselves obscure their own sensors to a mm -hmm. similar degree while the ship is cloaked because the cloak works both ways. Which I really appreciate because... If, if you were to be invisible, yes. light would pass through you. Yes. Meaning you weren't reflecting light in your own eyes. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's one of those things, and we you can always go round and round in circles about various forms of cloaking technology. Pick up where I left off. Like, if you were doing expanded universe stuff, cloaking is entirely sensor-based. Yeah. And then they'll paint the ships black to give an edge to being avoided spotting visually. You're like, okay, that's your set of rules. That's how it works exist. that way in Mass Effect, too, because yes, the Normandy has got that cloak device that yes. fools the sensors. You have that glorious bit in the second game where you go out to the Geth base, and Joker says, well, what if they look out a window? <laughs> Geth do <laughs> not like, use windows. They are a structural weakness. Yes, and, but that's the point, is that you define your universe, you give it a set of parameters, and then you can work inside of it. Yeah. In most science fiction, you are generally assuming that looking outside in the vast field of space for a vessel... That's probably several hundred kilometers, hundred thousand kilometers away from you. Not going to be incredibly effective. This, I know you like well-defined, well-balanced equipment. And this episode is great for that. Yes, it is. Because both ships have strengths and weaknesses. As we will learn later, the Romulan superweapon is very powerful, but it has a finite range because it's a giant ball of plasma, not a laser. Also incredibly draining on their fuel reserves. Yeah. So they only have enough fuel to get there and back because what truly elevates this episode is that we don't spend the entire time with our crew. We get to know the Romulan crew. Because after Stiles is told by Kirk, um, hey man, I'm not going to have any of your bigotry on my bridge, he literally says that to him, They, all the senior officers go to have a briefing. But before we get to that, 
we cut over the Romulan ship, and yep. this is where we meet our characters, who are characters. Yeah. There's three yeah. of them. They don't have names, but they're so well defined. Yeah. Yeah. They're, I just called them Captain, Advisor, and Ambitious Crewman. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Leonard delivers a masterful performance as yeah. the commander. And I don't remember the names of the other two actors, but the Centurion is very, very good as well. And the ambitious crewman is perfect in his role. Because as Ethan and I were watching the episode, he even said, the Romulan shouldn't have let that communication go by. And you run even that, but it's like, what was the source of it? It it just wasn't defined enough. Do they have equipment that just sort of isn't as well insulated and protected? Because if you're going with the submarine analogy, a ship must be designed to insulate from transmission leaks. And that seems like a design But then... It's it's but not then, yes. because we discover that the the junior officer aboard the bird the warbird has radioed the Praetor ahead of time. Mm-hmm. We assume so he can gain the credit for the victory, thus violating the orders of the commander for radio silence. And he points out this could be our undoing, and it ultimately yep. does turn out to be. He demotes this crewman on the spot, two, two ranks. ranks, and sends him back to his post. <laughs> the centurion, his old friend, points out that. Uh, you know, this this crewman, he's got friends and powerful friends. They're dangerous. And the Romulan commander says, Danger and I are old companions. And it's so good. Like, it's such a cheesy line, but Mark Leonard is so strong. Yeah. He delivers it like, this guy means that. But it also establishes that they're not evil. They're yeah. just part of a different empire with different priorities and different duties. And you even see that they're exceptionally competent. I'll argue by the end of this episode that I think that the Romulan was mildly more competent than Kirk in terms of strategy, not being successful apart from that. Just his actual strategic thinking was exceptionally strong. And you see him, he sees automatically that they're being chased, even though the the Enterprise is masquerading as a sensor shadow. Because he knows he's being chased, he cloaks, he, he knows that Kirk is studying them strategically. He's been in enough combat situations that he has a very good understanding of the lay of the land. Better than a hundred campaigns, the Centurion yeah. says. They're old buddies. He's instantly likable, the Romulan commander. Absolutely. He makes it clear that this mission isn't something he wants to be doing. Because the command has sent them to test the strength of the humans. He says, you know... Our portion is duty. We will do what we have to do. And this episode is like that, too. We will do what we have to do from Kirk's perspective. Yeah. Because Kirk makes it clear earlier that the Enterprise is expendable because their orders are to not violate the treaty. The Romulan commander knows he's also expendable, but his orders are to investigate the humans. And we see that Kirk and the commander are like parallels. Yeah, and it seems that duty pulls them through things that they don't really want to do. Kirk is not a warmonger. No, he doesn't wish to be pursuing war, and, and yet duty compels him to do so. This Romulan captain actually seems a little bit weary of war. There's an exchange where yeah. he's like, after all of this, I'm feeling a little heavy okay. from it. And, mm-hmm. and nonetheless, his, his sense of commitment to duty pulls him through that to follow through, as, as Alex said. So there's this, this idea you see of, of two men of extreme integrity within their own frames of mind carrying out what they deem necessary based on their conviction, and it shows, and it makes the episode much more powerful for that, yeah. much more developed story based I, on character. I can't say enough good things about Mark Leonard. <laughs> I, I, I just, it, it blew me away watching it all. Just the complexity within the, the cast of characters on, and like the, the two different crews within the two different vessels. It, it was so intricately put together almost that it, it just, it enhanced the story tenfold, I feel. It's very good. 
This will not be the last scene we have with the Romulans, thankfully, but we cut back to our briefing, briefing room. room. Yes, another yes. briefing room scene. Spock pulls out the metal. He's like, this is really strong. It's the strongest we know, and then he crushes it. Something about implosion. Which definitively shows that their weapons are pretty intense. But yeah. it's, it's good script writing because they don't dwell on that. Yeah. Because yeah. ultimately, the weapon is powerful. That's all we need to know. Well, we don't need to waste it, it time. It sets up a brief contrast. They're like, okay, their advantages are obviously their weapon, and they can cloak. Our advantages seem to be that we're maneuverable and faster. Because that's that's it. He doesn't want to go to war with these guys unless they know there's a chance of them to win. Because he says, is there a chance we can win? And Scotty says, absolutely, we are faster than them. They're only at impulse. Styles, he's like, he's, he's chomping at the bit. He gets up, and after Kirk and the crew have a bit of a back and forth about what we're going to do, Styles is borderline insubordinate when he stands up and angrily demands... That everyone remember that the Romulans have killed a bunch of human citizens and are trying to slink back across the neutral zone. Because Kirk doesn't want to go into the neutral zone. Those are his orders very explicitly to avoid going into the neutral zone. McCoy is passionately arguing that they don't go into the neutral zone. And McCoy's argument, again, in this episode, I feel like in a lot of later episodes, McCoy gets the shorthand and the stick in the argument against Spock because... Ultimately, we have to do what we have to do. But this episode, I think they give McCoy a fair argument because he's saying this is obviously a setup. And if we fall for it, we could be dragged into a war. Yeah. And our orders are to avoid a war at all costs. Us and the space stations were explicitly ordered to be even expendable to that order. But in the end, Kirk is going to get them without going over over the neutral. Well, I think a lot of it boils down to Spock's response. Spock responding and saying, you know... I fundamentally actually have to agree with Styles in that the Romulans appear to be operating on an old philosophy um, as an offshoot of, of Vulcans. And this is, again, sort of going back to his spitballing about the origins of this race. Did they originate during the time when Vulcans were savage and colonist and spread across the galaxy? And we get our first taste of real serious Vulcan history. Because this is going to go on and be a big thing that the Romulans were Vulcans who... When Surak, the great Vulcan philosopher father, who brought the logic and brought the the controlled emotion way, took prominence, they left Vulcan rather than follow this teaching. And I think that's just a brilliant concept. Yeah. I like the idea that Spock gives us this little peek behind the curtain, the most rational, calm man on the space in space. His people, who are known for their rationale and their yeah. calm, in their past were more aggressive than we are. It's yeah. made fundamentally clear the Vulcans almost destroyed themselves. And so these Romulans, being Vulcan cousins by this point, they're, they're, they're separate now because of just time and distance. They are like those old Vulcans, and so if we and back Spock, down... And Spock recognizes that. He, he, show, he knows that because of that old philosophy... Leaving them to go into the neutral zone would be a weakness, and unfortunately that's a greater stimulus to war than going and ending this vessel. Yeah. And that's, it's an interesting moment for Spock, because you, you know he probably doesn't want to agree with Styles. Nobody wants no. to agree with someone who's just like, you're probably a spy and I hate you. And it's like, well, sit yeah, down, mister. Yeah, sit down, mister. <laughs> uh, but at the end of the day, it shows, you know, Spock's character is consistent. He, he yeah. realizes that the only effective deterrent for war long term is going to be a pursuit of this vessel they, to end this. It's funny because it reminds me a little bit of Corbin, the Corbin Mike maneuver. Remember that part when they're trying to figure out if the boy is a trap or a turret, and Spock is concerned that they cannot appear weak in the face mm -hmm. of a potentially hostile alien? Yeah. But, except this time... There's actually stakes. Because the Romulans <laughs> the Romulans are not an ugly bald space baby. They are going to kill you. And they have yeah. killed. And they're they going to kill everyone if you let them think of so, you as weak. Kirk calls the bridge, and Dohora answers. 
And I find it interesting because with all the other senior staff, Ahura is in command of the bridge. Yep. We don't explicitly see it. We're not explicitly told it because 60s. But Ahura must be in command. Must yeah. be in that chair. And it's like, it's too bad we never got to see Ahura in the chair. But, like, it makes sense. Kirk says, you know what? We have no choice. Based on the... And you get the impression Kirk, like Spock, doesn't want to go to war. But they have no choice. We are going to catch them. We are going to chase them down before they cross the neutral zone. Because a comet is coming across the path of both ships. The comet's leaving its tail behind. And Kirk knows that when they go through the comet, the Romulans will be visible momentarily because the ship will leave the outline. Because it's not... It's because, again, they've well set up. It's bending light. So the particles of the comet tail will still go around the ship. Yeah. But they'll be able to get a visual. So he says, when they get close, we're going to break. We're going to stop pretending to be a sensor echo, which up until this point, they've been matching the Romulans movement for movement. And all the other Romulans on the ship think they're an echo, except the commander who's shown to be too intelligent. He knows better. He knows better. Yeah. There's one guy who insists the entire episode that it's an echo. He'll be like, the echo is back. Even after they've had combat with the other guys. <laughs> That's why he's not in command. He's the uh, he's the dumb guy on that crew. So they make their pursuit course for the comet. And we learn that the commander wants to go through the comet because the comet tail will confuse the sensors on the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. So you realize he's not just going through this for no reason, even though by his own admission he thinks it's, it's beautiful and he says, oh, I long for the stars of home. We get kind of, again, that old soldier, he's homesick, he's done with mm. the campaign, and it's more nice character stuff. Yeah. But also, see, I hate in scripts when things happen just because. Yeah. We know they have to go in here because we need to see them so we can start the action. But there's an explanation, there's a reason. He wants to confuse the censors so they can lose their, quote, echo, unquote. Yeah. Kirk wants them to go into it so he can catch a visual with their eyes... Yeah. And eyeball shoot the ship. But then the captain thinks through his own strategy, and he's like, wait a minute. Yeah. If we go through and they see us, they're going to start shooting. And then he's like, evasive maneuvers. He doubles. Evasive maneuver one, because he, he double anticipates. And Kirk, then sort of... Vander doubles back, because Kirk has moved around to shoot them head on, and then Kirk realizes that he has called... Because then Kirk... Because we're cutting between these two guys as they are guessing and second-guessing. It's like a chess game between yeah. these two yeah. masters. And Kirk himself then immediately also calls for evasive action because he realizes they've been double-bluffed. Yeah. And then we have our first set of fire. Yes, this is this is something that's going to happen a lot in this episode. And I'm going to preface this by saying a lot... If, if you're looking at this episode as, a, as evidence of sort of which captain did a better job of strategic guessing, I'd argue by the end that the Romulans did a better job of strategic planning just based on their adaption to the situation and the maneuvers they're putting forward and various other things, that that's something you can have subjective differences in opinion about. Because at the end of the day, a lot of the success of the Enterprise in these next sequences is based off of the successful hits of their blind fires. Yeah. So it's like, you, if you're looking at this and saying like, well, Captain Kirk's obviously the better strategist because he wins. It's like, for a second, pretend that any one of those sequences with blind fires misses. And now the Enterprise is in a much worse position, and you may actually have had the Romulans come out on top. And that's sort of the thing about this story, is you see two seasoned veteran commanders of roughly equal capacity. I'd argue subjectively a little more the Romulans. I like some of their maneuvers. You could argue for Captain Kirk. That's not the issue here. It's more that in war, war is messy. And and sometimes there is just blind luck. Kirk's victory here is a well-earned victory by all means, all that stuff, but it's not conclusive. You're left thinking... 
what if? And we get into the glorious submarine battle because yes. both of them unable to fully see each other. Kirk orders the phaser set to a burst pattern fire to shoot in sectors. Yeah. Because as the Romulans have now evaded them through the comet, the commander is booking it to get back across the neutral zone because he knows the Enterprise will not pursue them into the neutral zone and they've accomplished their objective. He just wants to get home. Yeah. Kirk lays down a spread of phaser fire while pursuing. He actually gives the command. He says, you know what? We're going to go into the neutral zone. Uh, send that communication to Starfleet to let them know we're going to do it. They power forward firing. Styles points out that at this rage, a hit would be impossibly lucky. <laughs> Kirk says, do it anyway. And they do hit. Yep. And the Romulan ship is shaking. The Centurion... Goes to save the captain. The Centurion, in an act of selflessness that endears them... Because just as the Enterprise will have a man who dies and has a man who risks his life to save his fellow man, so do the Romulans. The Centurion yeah. saves his commander's life at the cost of his own life. Yep. It shows that these these are they're not bad people. They're not the monstrous villains. They're they're just here in this situation. They're here in this circumstance too. But what does blind firing set you up for? Counterattack. Return fire. Because yeah. as Ethan has talked about how much he loves limits. They can only fire the phasers that quickly, that often, and they burn them out. Yeah. The Romulans turn around, and they return fire. They fire their big, massive energy pulse. Kirk orders emergency warp, and they retreat as fast as they can to try and get away from And the from thing's them. still catching up. It is faster than them. However, they realize, as they get farther and farther away, that the plasma is starting to dissipate. Yeah. Because it is not... It's just not stable. It's, it's not, not stable. A, yeah. And yeah. for the for targeting a, a platform like a space station that can't move or move very quickly, if it can move at all, it's a perfectly effective weapon. Yeah. We see that Mr. Schneider, the writer, must have really liked the idea of Kirk and Janice being together because she comes up on the bridge to make a call and like when they think they're about to die and get hit, she like wraps her arms around him. Yeah, it gets snuggly. Although here's one thing I will say, this scene does suffer a bit from the stereotypical movie trope of like running away from an object in the worst possible direction. Yeah. Because it's like if Kirk had like gone even a degree off the course of where this plasma shot was going, they, they wouldn't be in the way of it anymore. And it would have been an easy fix with a few seconds of shift to the side. It's following us, sir. Yeah. All it would it's take tracking was something us. like this. Tracking. It's a tracking yeah. shot. But like no, it's it's just it brings up that trope. It's always funny every time you see it. Because invariably, the good guys will always run in the the way out of the path that causes them the most danger as they're doing it. Which is it's just cinematic. It, it slams into the Enterprise, but at a much reduced state. Like, nobody's even knocked over. And Kirk realizes now's our chance, because Spock has got the phasers back. They return fire, and they hit the Romulans again. But then we have a little bit of a pause. The Romulans commander takes this opportunity to load the debris from his ship into the jettison tubes including the body of his friend. They need to resort to trickery. Their fuel's running low. They're not even putting on their cloak at this moment because they don't have are, the energy. They don't have the energy. So things aren't looking great for them. They've been hit by a few objectively lucky shots, but nonetheless, that's how war is, and it's put them in a hard spot. The commander, Jedit, says, I'm sorry, my old friend, but I, I have to use everything to get us home. So they fire it out, and this is another example of both sides being smart because Spock is not fooled by the debris for more than a few seconds. Yeah. They scan yeah. it. He says, there is not enough here. Keep looking. But those few seconds were all the Romulans needed to hit their cloak and disappear again. Actually, I'm going to correct that slightly. They actually don't put cloak on. They just go quiet. Right. This is the point at which we truly resemble a submarine battle because both ships, first the Romulans go quiet, 
And then the um, Enterprise realizes that it's the only thing that can be detected. And they so go they quiet. go quiet. And now you get that true situation of, well, it wouldn't work as much in space. And you're going to have to suspend your disbelief a bit in this because sound doesn't travel through space the I way it doesn't between submarines and water. Yeah. But nonetheless, they're following the principles that mimic the submarine battle. They're going quiet in both technology and personal communication. They're whispering. And yeah. I feel like the whispering is for dramatic effect. Yes. But certainly the idea, it makes sense in a system where you're scanning that you kill all the power so you have nothing to detect. Yeah. Yeah. So they both go to a diet, quiet mode, and we get this nice tense bit where we find out it's been nine and a half hours where they've been sitting there waiting, which is so impressive. Like, I, yeah. On the Romulan ship, the one officer says, it's been 20 cycles. They've fallen for it. And the commander goes, no, not this, Captain. And on Kirk's side, I think Stiles says, like, we probably destroyed it. Kirk goes, no, no, we haven't. And the two commanders are starting to respect each other a lot. They both have a line about how it's like, that's what I would do. He's, he's thinking tactically. Spock sets up our problem later that will ultimately break this stalemate when he says, these phaser couplings have burned out again. I need to fix them. Yeah. Kirk says, work quietly. We don't want to set up a problem. We cut to a scene of Kirk in his in his quarters just trying to deal with the tension. He says, nine and a half hours have passed. Janice comes in to check mm -hmm. on him. We get, again, a little bit of that Kirk-Janice tension. She says, can I get you anything from the galley? He goes, just coffee. That's coffee. i got to work. Take it to the bridge. So Janice didn't get any snuggling in. She's, she's clearly disappointed. McCoy comes in, and we have one of my favorite Leonard McCoy scenes. I mean, it's not as good as the scene where he slaps a pregnant woman, but I enjoy that ironically. This is a, this is, That happens in uh, Friday's Child. We'll get there for us. I am so excited. McCoy slaps a pregnant woman right in the face. But in this, this scene, he comes in, and Kirk... Kirk is very strong. He's always been strong. And he presents himself to the crew like he's made every decision. But now when it's just him and his friend, Kirk lets on to Bones that he's really worried about what he's going to do. Because Kirk, in the next couple of minutes, is going to either bring the Federation into a war or not. Yep. And it's all on his shoulders because Starfleet hasn't gotten back to them yet. So he's got to make a decision now. And he says, Bones, I wish I was on a cruise ship with, you know, without many, without frantic dancing and not enough, not too much deck tennis. Which is kind of a little bit of a showing its age. Where he says, you know, I wish I didn't have these responsibilities. You know, what if I make the wrong call? Don't answer it. Bone says, no, I have an answer. And he gives this brilliant speech. Where he says, in this galaxy, there are three million star systems. And three million million system galaxies like this one that could contain life. And yet, among all of that life in the galaxy, there's only one of each of us. Don't destroy the one called Kirk, and it's wow. It's it, it was powerful yeah. stuff. Wow. I almost put that speech in the opening credits for this podcast before I went with the um, kind of captains alone is, is the idea that I liked. But I I'm extremely fond of that little little bit. It's very good. It's very powerful. And Kirk kind of renewed says, "Well, let's let's get it done." And he goes back up to the bridge. Spock is making his repairs on the bridge. And Spock messes up, like, for real. He doesn't do that often, but in this up, he, he bumps one of the communications, and because space has been dead for nine and a half hours, that brief moment where one of the systems powers up is enough for the Romulans to And is enough on. for Styles to give him the side-eye again. Styles, because that looks like something a traitor would do. <laughs> and then both captains snap an order to go to attack. Styles, 
asks to be sent down to the phaser control to help Thompson because it's been nine hours. We've been rotating all over the place. Nobody's in the phaser room. Thompson is running it by himself. Kirk says, go. He puts Ahura in the driver's seat. Woo! Ahura, yay! And Sulu's appreciative of that. It's yeah. great. Sulu gives this little tiny smile, and it's like... If you're into, like, the idea of, like, a Sulu horror relationship, like, this is a good episode for that. <laughs> Take that, Abrams. <laughs> but um, the Romulan commander thinks, I'm going to play a similar trick that I pulled earlier, but he's going to put a twist on it. Yeah. So that, because they're going to just say, oh, it's just debris, it doesn't matter. But because they can't fire their cannon again, their energy's burned out, they take one of the old nuclear warheads that they left behind that were only for self-destruction... He loads it in the tube with some of the other debris, and he launches it at the Enterprise. And this is what I'd argue, like, gives him, <laughs> like, in this situation, I'm not saying that it makes him a, a, an objectively better commander, but I think this is a, a situation where, if I were to evaluate this as a chess match, I think he comes out somewhat on top. Like, this is a good strategy. Like, this is a pretty great intentional strategy, because he's doing this in the midst of Kirk starting another round of blind fires. And, yeah. and so he does this, and then Spock's like, there's this encased metal object in this debris cloud. And then they fire at it. I think and, like, that is... That shows that the strategy put forward by that commander actually worked. It's just that the bomb wasn't powerful enough to destroy well, the Enterprise. Well, I would, I would argue that they know that they have nukes. Spock mentions that at the beginning. And I think the reason Kirk orders them to immediately fire is because he realizes if that nuke makes contact with the Enterprise... Because remember, he yeah. detonates it when it's away from the ship. Uh, I'm going to uh, contest that a little bit, because the distance that it's away from the ship is 100 meters. It's 100 and I'm just going to tell you, I thought it was 100,000 you know meters. No, it's 100 meters, which is a little... It, it, it reduces the validity of that concept a tiny bit. <laughs> it's just 100 meters away from a nuke is not that much different than right beside a nuke. But hey, it, I, I'm not going to judge there. I'm just showing that, like... I do respect the Romulan strategies in this show. I, I'm not so much on board the, the, the Enterprise train that I'm like, everything that the Enterprise does is better than everything that the, the villains of the day do. But, I'm like, I, I think that the Romulans did an excellent I'm job. I'm not saying this, that, it that it's top, not. Top I'm just saying I think that the nuke would have destroyed them if it made contact, because you could argue, well, maybe it's not as much difference. Maybe the physical object would have passed through the shields and hit them right in the hull. Maybe. Because they do get radiation poisoning on 22 guys. So yeah, it's not enough to kill anyone. Fair. And Controversy! It, <laughs> and it knocks the Enterprise backwards, and it and they damage them badly. Everyone is thrown from their seats, and we have my favorite, uh, Michelle Nikos. Ahura flies out of her seat, because if you look yes. at the background, she stands up and, like, runs across the room it was fantastic. the wrong way to the turbo lift, and it's it's only over in, like, a second, but it's so funny. She's I the only one going the opposite direction. It's perfect. It's, it's, it's hilarious. And again, we come back from the commercial break, ship's badly damaged, Kirk is playing dead. It, it is a fantastic idea. It's perfect tactic for that situation. Because Kirk is hoping that they'll come closer to finish them off, and then he'll be able to kill them. And on the Romulan ship, we can see the Romulan commander is thinking, like, let's just go. Let's just limp. Let's just get out of here. But his, his power-hungry second makes it pretty clear that, um, listen, if you go back without destroying this Earth ship, It'll be passed up the chain of command, and they'll know that you that you failed. You didn't do the job well enough. So he goes, fine, we will go in. They go after them. Kirk gets ready to fire. He calls for them to shoot, but nothing happens. See, what's happened, folks, is there's been a coolant leak in the phaser reactor section. Spock goes down to check on it. Stiles says, we don't need a Vulcan's help, which, again, could have ended him up court-martialed because... 
space racism or no styles, that's the first officer aboard the Enterprise. And yeah. you, you can't speak to him that way. Like that that's literally a court martialable offense. And as soon as Spock leaves, it turns out you did need his help anyway. Because there's a coolant leak. Oh, no! And the coolant leak has got both Stiles and Thompson on the ground. They can't respond. They're choking out. Kirk is saying, fire, fire! And Kirk, in kind of a subtly intelligent move, now has it broadcasting on every channel. When Spock is running through the hallway, you can hear Kirk's command echoing from a couple different communicators. So he's saying, we need to shoot right this second! Spock goes into the room, which earlier in the episode was like a four-man job. Mm -hmm. He does everything himself. Spock fires the phasers, slams it into the Romulan ship, knocks the Romulans out, battle's over. We don't see Spock drag the, the bodies out, but we will find out later that he did do that. Yep. Mm. Kirk and the Romulan commander finally speak. This is the first time they actually speak to each it's other. It's a great moment. I love and it. The two of, like, Kirk, Kirk tells him, it's like, we're ready to beam your wounded aboard. Because he's like, you know, he, he's ready to it's take the way he goes. And, what and he does? Romulan commander says, you know, that is that is not our way, Captain. He says, I regret that we met in this way. You and I are of a different kind. In a, no, a no, kind. No. We are of a kind. I regret that we meet in this way. We are of a kind. In a different reality, I would have called you friend. friend. And it's, mm. it's chill. That to me. I, I know you love the Bones line. This is my line. For this episode, this is the quote. It's more, but you know what? It's like you prefer the Mona Lisa or the Last Supper. Yeah. There is no wrong answer because this last speech from from the Romulan commander is is perfect. And and I think this moment in particular sets this episode apart from all the previous ones we have we have watched together or or separately because it it builds up to this point of of meeting together mm. the the protagonist. In as as the cohesive crew of the Starship Enterprise working their butt off all the way to face this adversity, and then we get to know the the Romulans outside of enemy of the day format. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. and and it just it 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 eludes. It's it's just so beautiful how it, how the tension just rises into a crescendo moment. Yeah, I think the way one of the ways that I describe this best is that. Star Trek is notorious for being very monster of the week, but this episode stands out because there's no monsters. Oh. Yeah. Um, and and None at humans all. or aliens or anything else to be said, it's it's just there are people from different races working towards their ideologies, and this is a clash of ideals, which if you know any of the great fights that have occurred throughout cinematography, whether it be vehicle battles or individual one-on-one -on -one battles or anything like that, You'll, you'll remember the ones that matter, not because of the spectacle behind the actual fight that goes on, but because every good fight that is remembered is based around a differing of ideals, and that mm. it really doesn't matter how long a fight is, provided that the, the actual um, idealism um, conflict that goes on behind the scenes is fleshed out well. That's why when Luke fights Darth Vader at the end of Episode Six, that fight is a better fight than any of the fights in the new trilogy or the prequels, other than the fight where Anakin and Obi-Wan fight. I'd even say that there's a certain viscerality to it that sort of gives it a bit more weight. I would put some more emphasis on Episode Six than on um, uh, Revenge of the... Wait, it's Revenge, Revenge of the Sith. Sith. Return of the Jedi, <laughs> Revenge of the Sith. Always get you. I'd, I'd give a little bit of an edge to Episode Six over Episode Three, but I'd say yeah. that, yeah, they're, they've got a certain degree of similarity in terms of the weight behind them. Because yeah. it's, it's brilliant. The Romulan commander... The last man alive, he does his duty one last time, and he blows the ship up. Yep. Self-destruct. And, as we'll establish later, the Enterprise has a self-destruct as well. And if the tables were turned, 
Could have been Kirk making that call. We have only two scenes left. We have a scene in the sick bay where Kirk checks in on his wounded, and we see that Spock risked his life to pull, we assume, both men out. It's, it's not explicitly said, but I, I, I've always assumed that he pulls both out, but Thompson is too far. No, he saw, he saw the death flags. He says, I'm not my, gonna, my effort is wasted here. He's pulled Styles out. <laughs> and Styles is actually, like, Styles even gets a little bit of character redemption because he says, you know, I would have been dead if it wasn't for, for Spock. You know, I, even at, he says, even after all I, I said, and Spock says, I saved the life of the talent. The talent. <laughs> it's like, thanks, he Spock. Says, Spock's like, shove it in your face. He says, to imply that there was anything more is beyond my nature. Kirk says, have we had any killed? And McCoy says, just one. And you know. We don't yeah, know who that is. We don't know Thompson. But, McCoy, who's going to be married. But here's the payoff. It is an annoying trope. It was set up in an annoying way, at least to modern viewers. And if it didn't have payoff, I would hate it. But the last scene of this episode redeems the use of that trope. Maybe not the trope itself. But it redeems the use of it to set up this moment. Kirk goes in and visits his, his bride-to-be. And she's obviously broken up about this. And Kirk is seen portrayed as a responsible authority figure who recognizes the nature of the conflict, but also recognizes the legitimate sense of loss that comes from these things. Comforts her in an appropriate way. He's not creepy Kirk. He's nothing like that. Just gives her a hug. Talks to her about how never makes any sense. Never makes any sense. Yeah. And at the end, just need to move forward from that. And the episode ends on a very unique shot, something that we don't actually see very much in the other episodes. Because usually when the credits roll, we cut straight to pictures. But we have several seconds of Kirk walking kind of stoically through the halls. And everyone, we see everyone around him. They're chatting happily. There's like an emphasis on life is back to normal. But for Kirk, Kirk has got to go make a call to a family. Yeah. He's got to, and we see that. Just like the Romulan commander, the balance of command his is on duty, his shoulders. His duty at the end was to his crew and his people, and he detonated his ship. Kirk's duty as the victor, even though there is victory, is to make sure he is responsible for the dead. And captains yeah. of all stripes don't get to escape their responsibility. And that's the theme of the episode by the end. That's how it ends. Uh, it's a brilliant episode, well-received even when it came in. Obviously, this is a big episode for Star Trek in general because it's the first appearance of the Romulans. Paul Schneider, the writer, is credited with creating the Romulans. It said, quote, It was a matter of developing a good Roman-esque set of admirable antagonists that were worthy of Kirk. I came up with the concept of the Romulans, which was an extension of the Romans, uh, if they got to the point of space travel, and it turned out quite well. So John D.F. Black, an associate producer, said that Schneider is the father of the Romulans. Not me, not Gene. Nobody else. It's Paul Schneider. And when he came up with the Romulan characters, they were so wonderful. They were full. full. I liked that script a lot. So if you like the Romulans, it's not Gene. By, his, by Gene's own admission, it's Schneider to get the credit for that. McEverty talks about how Kirk and the Commander had this great antagonism. Mark Leonard, who is going to go on to play both the Klingon in Star Trek The Motion Picture, and most famously Sarek, Spock's dad, says, um, The Romulan Commander was one of the best roles I ever had on TV. He says, in many ways, I enjoyed Sarek more, but I thought the Romulan commander was more demanding as a character. Which is interesting, because Sarek has several episodes to develop his character, and yet Leonard himself thought that the Romulan commander was a more complex character, mm -hmm. which I like. And Gene Roddenberry picked this as one of his ten favorite episodes. This is another one of Gene's top ten. And I think it's very well designed. I can see why. This is certainly one of my top ten. So, folks, we're about at the end of the time. This is where we give our final ratings. 
we are going to give these episodes a rating on an ADAF scale with pluses and minuses included. That's how our way is. I'm going to shake things up a little bit, and I'm going to go first. I don't typically go first at this, but by this point, it's pretty obvious how I feel about this episode, so I want to get it right up there. A+. Plus. Folks, this is my very first A-plus episode. In my opinion, this is easy. This could be my favorite episode. There are about four or five that, that vie for that top spot. This is one of my top ten. This could arguably be the technically best episode of Star Trek. There's plenty of good stuff to come, don't get me wrong, but this to me, if I don't give an A-plus to this episode, for me personally, there won't be another episode who gets it. This to me is A-plus. What more can I say? It's perfect in every way. Guest acting for Mark Leonard in particular, but also the Centurion is very good. Styles is very good. Submarine tension, great script writing. Every action has a purpose. No character is shown to be incompetent for the escape of script. Even kind of, the, as as Ethan pointed out, even the kind of the cheesy death of the guy who's obviously going to die is elevated. And to me, it just sets that idea of Kirk knows all these random crewmen by name. And even though it'll never be brought up to the same degree again, Kirk mourning for one of these crewmen lost on an away mission, in the back of our minds, throughout the show, we remember that Kirk cares about these random security guards and these random engineers. And to me, it even elevates the whole show. So, A+. A+. Hands down. First one. Uh, first episode I've given an A+. Very well deserved. Bailey. I, we, we started this a little while ago, this podcast. And going into this, I've it, it's always been... I've, I've been giving Star Trek a chance. Giving... The, the, some of the campiness and, and some of the dated set and, and costume designs a pass and just to give it a try. I, I'm giving this an A plus because this episode has made me love Star Trek. This was the one? This was the one. This is the one where you're no longer here just kind of ironically for the, like, this is, yeah. this is legitimately good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. To preface this, I'm going to say that one of my pet peeves is television and, and cinema that tries to do black and white morality in shades of gray, but does so by doing, by trying to portray objectively moral decisions as not as moral as you'd think, and objectively evil decisions as not as evil as you think. And then you're just sitting there like, you actually tried to convince me that was morally gray? And it, the reason it doesn't work is because morality is morality. What works is clashing ideals. Because ideals, while they intersect with morality, ideals are, are distinct entities. They're, they're convictions around a set of principles and duties. And when those intersect, you can have some of the greatest storytelling in, in television, if you do it right. And this is an example of it being done right. There are two men of extreme character, but very differing ideals, going at it in a situation where there is really no escape from the conflict, so they have to meet in, a, in a, an arena of combat and sort of hash it out through the means they have available. And it turned out spectacular. This is a great example of how to do conflict dramas. It's a great way of how to set up a story that is internally consistent, has world-building as well as consequences beyond the scope of the story, should things go either way. So there's a lot of tension um, dramatically and narratively. I just love this episode. It is going to get an A. That's the highest rating, the highest rating I've ever given. And if you're disappointed, I'm not being contrarian. Remember, these two gave it an A+. So I'm not letting all of you down that way. It's just a well-set-up episode. It shows some of the best of what science fiction can be. And not even in the campy way of, like, back when we were watching the pilot. I'm like, this is fun science fiction. It's got a bit of a kick to it. I gave it a B+. Because it was fun science fiction. This is 
good science fiction. It's good unironic. This is good unironic quality science fiction. And if this was more of what Star Trek was all the time, I have no doubt this would be a show that was even more popular today than this now. So, folks, this episode from all of us, this is a do not miss. Yeah. This absolutely. is the highest rated on average A A plus A plus. Staggeringly good. Do not miss Balance of Terror on any watch through. It is not one you should ever skip. So we'll be back hopefully next week. Um, for those of you who don't know, me and my wife are expecting the birth of our first child in the coming weeks. This episode should hopefully be up by then. Uh, we will hopefully not have too many schisms or delays, but if there's a slight delay by a week or two, you'll know why. Join us when we're able to come back for What Are Little Girls Made Of? Which is a story about androids. It also features the first on-screen death of a security guard whose name I remember, Rayburn! And there's a famous story about Gene Roddenberry making a costume even skimpier than it is. This will be the first of those classic skimpy Star Trek costumes, but don't let that fool you. It's actually a pretty good episode. Until then, um, have a good one, everyone. We'll see you when you get back. I can't believe we're on the internet. <laughs>